The reading I'm going to give to you is Psalm 88. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. I'm so thankful for that psalm. But I have to confess that when I've yelled at God, I've never been as articulate as the psalmist. <laughs> You've put me in the darkest depths. I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you every day. I cry out to you. You've taken my companions and my loved ones. The darkness is my closest friend. How desperate is that? You can feel the pain oozing out of the very core of his being. And stuff happens 
Life throws things at us that we're not expecting. And if there's one thing that I've learnt, it's the need to be honest and real. Firstly, with myself. Because if I can't be honest with myself, then it's impossible to be honest with anyone else, including God. So I'm going to share some of my story with you and start off with um, a bit of background. So I'm the youngest of six, um, and I grew up in a strict Christian home. And I married Adrian when I was 23, and life, life was life, ups and downs, work, mortgage, riding motorbikes, ordinary stuff. And after 18 years of living in Bath, Adrian and I moved to Warminster. And about six weeks later, Adrian became ill, and after all the hassle of moving, I just said, oh, it's man flu. But he's actually died with cancer and died four months later. Although we knew that he was, he was terminally ill, it was actually really sudden. And one evening, I found myself dialing 999, and he got rushed into hospital through the night. I thought, this is not looking good, and he died a few hours later. After the diagnosis, it had been a real roller coaster ride, and we had absolutely minimum medical support. I don't know why, um, but we were just never referred to the hospice. We'd slipped through the net because he was in hospital in London, because it's quite a rare form of cancer. So between London, Salisbury, and the GP, we just kind of disappeared. And then it, that was it, it was suddenly all over. So it was just a massive shock and my worst nightmare. And Adrian died at the end of September, and all I could think was, I've just got to survive. I've got to survive through Christmas and New Year, and then I will just pick up my life and just get on with it again. New Year's Day arrived, and with it came the reality that actually, this is it. This was how my life was going to be. And it was just horrendous. It was awful. I'd lost Adrian. I felt like I'd lost my home as well, because we had only recently moved, and we hadn't actually put our mark on the place because he was ill so soon after we moved. I quit my job because I couldn't cope with it. Friends also found it really hard. They had their own grief. And where we knew people together, actually those friendships didn't work anymore. And they also didn't know what to do with me. And I didn't know what to do with me either. And my whole identity was just tied up with Adrian. And I had no idea who I was. But it also triggered other things going back to my childhood. I was absolutely terrified of God, having grown up in a really strict Christian upbringing. I, do, I was too scared not to believe in God. I was terrified of him. And I didn't know what he was going to throw at me next. And what demand he might make of me. And I hated myself. In some ways, I felt like I'd just got what I deserved. So in a nutshell, I felt that actually I had no life to pick up. And the days were really bad, but at night I wanted to be comatose. So I did whatever I could to make that happen. At one point, about six months after Adrian died, um, I remember someone saying that the hardest place for an artist to be is in front of a blank canvas. And when I heard that, I realized that actually my life was a blank canvas. And I was actually more scared of living than I was of dying. A concerned friend said she knew someone who could help me, 
And so this person contacted me and I agreed to see her. Two years later, I moved back to Bath. I worked full-time and I was, I was functioning. And I started coming here to church in 2012. But for one year, I would creep in as the service was starting and then I'd run out as soon as it finished. I couldn't speak to anyone. And there'll be some people here who remember that. But the times that were really dark were those when I lost all hope. Because I couldn't see how anything could ever change or get any better. Five years after Adrian's death, I was desperate. I recognised in those five years that I'd got nowhere. In fact, I was feeling worse and worse, and it was getting darker and darker. And I was on really dodgy ground with regards to self-harm. But eventually, I'm not quite sure how I managed it, because it was really so out of character for me. But I asked for help. And I thought that someone would just say a prayer and send me away. But instead, I was told that I needed to do a journey. I was going to have to be patient, because it was going to take time. And two people journeyed with me for nearly two years. And on that journey, I faced the pain and the grief. And I began to understand how fragmented I was. From my childhood, I had a little Esther at various ages, and I hated her. I was carrying a lot of anger, and I had, I'd had really issues with my dad. And I had a warped view of a God who was demanding and who I could never please. I had to keep trying to be good, but it was never good enough, and I just felt like a constant failure. Dealing with grief is really hard work because it's not just the original significant loss. It's the losses around it, the secondary losses, the complications it brings, and the complexities that surface. And the people who journeyed with me were trained, they knew what they were doing. They made me feel safe, and I knew that I could be honest. And they could take whatever I said, and they wouldn't judge me or be shocked, but they just loved me through it. And after nearly 18 months, I'd faced a lot of things, but I realized that there was one place that I couldn't go. And that was, that was to do with the person who joined the first five years after Adrian's death had thought that she was helping me. It was a controlling situation and emotionally and sexually abusive. And I was so shocked when it first happened, but in the end, I expected it, and it happened countless times. But I didn't know how to get away, because this person was helping me. And I was supposed to be grateful. But I did manage to get away. But as, with the case, as is the case with abuse, it's, it's secret. And it took me 18 months to realise that I could talk about anything apart from this period of five years. I carried so much shame and telling someone about this was the one place that I thought I could never, ever go. I thought it would be with me forever. But as soon as I realized this, I knew that it was exactly where I needed to go. I needed to talk about it. I can't tell you how hard it was. And I could only say a few words. 
the hardest thing for me to deal with regarding this was the fact that I'm an adult. And I allowed it to happen. So I saw it as my own stupid fault. And the reason that I'm sharing this with you is because it's so important when we're vulnerable that we get the right sort of help. You really, we really do need to get people that we know that they're trained, that they're qualified, and that they know what they're doing. So loss is never just one thing. There can be many other impacts and consequences of it. Forgiveness for this has been really hard, forgiving the person, but it was also really hard for me to forgive myself. That's another massive journey, and that one, that particular journey isn't for this evening. So after almost two years of being on one type of journey, I then embarked on walking the Camino de Santiago. So when I first heard about the Camino, I just knew that I needed to do it. A few people said that it was a pilgrimage, and I didn't know what on earth they were talking about because I thought I was just going on a long walk. But I've since come across this, and I think it's quite a good description of pilgrimage. And it's this. It says, for pilgrimage to be real, it has to be a moving experience in more than simply a physical sense. True pilgrimage is about the opening of our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, not simply about traveling. It has to do with relationships rather than destinations. It involves seeing this world as God's world and the people in it, including ourselves, as people loved by God. Pilgrimage is more about the heart than the soles of the feet. So I'd first heard about the Camino on Christmas Day 2014, and I knew that I wanted to do it. Um, back then, I wanted to do it because I wanted to run away. But for various reasons, it was really important for me to wait until September. When I finally arrived at the start in the foothills of the Pyrenees in southern France, I had a meltdown. I couldn't believe that I'd actually made it to the start. But then I engaged brain and realized that I had to walk 500 miles. <laughs> and I had no idea how I was going to do it. I'm not going to share much about how, how the Camino works, um, finding a way where to stay. But there's a film called The Way that some of you, have, I know, have seen. Um, it stars Martin Sheen. And that gives a really good insight into what the Camino is like. But when you're on pilgrimage, there's something about the simplicity of the day-to-day -day walking. Life is stripped back to its bare essentials. You find something to eat, you get something to drink, you wash, you sleep, you walk. But there is purpose within all that. You're actually not just wandering aimlessly, you're walking specifically to a, a place. And when I was walking, I fairly quickly got into a routine of um, walking, eating, meeting people, doing chores, chatting. So my chores were washing. So you travel really light. I carried everything in my rucksack, so it was literally wear one, wash one. Um, no luxuries. I did a talk recently at, um, on pilgrimage at St. Mary's Bathwick to year fours, eight-year-olds. And we emptied out my rucksack, and it was, what do you think I've got in my rucksack? And they were really disappointed that I didn't have a cuddly toy. <laughs> But I knew that I was on this journey for a reason. I'm sure a lot of you here will have experienced this. I know it's not just me. 
But when you're driving along and you kind of suddenly come to and think, how the heck did I get here? I don't remember the last three miles. I think that's not an uncommon experience, is it? <laughs> but I was aware that I didn't want to just keep walking and then suddenly find that I got to the end and that I'd missed God on the way. So on about day six, I was walking along and thinking about this and I just felt God say, walk with me. It was really simple. It was an invitation. It wasn't a demand. It was just walk with me. But I found myself saying to God, okay, I want to do that, but I don't really know what it means or how to do it. So I found myself beginning to say in the morning, okay, God, I'm walking with you today. And I think all that really happened was that I became a bit more aware of the people that were around me, the scenery, and that was about it, really. I chose to walk most days on my own, um, but I met different people along the way, and every so often our paths would cross. And the days went by, and I got to day 17. And I was walking across an area called the Masetta, and it's um, between two big cities, Burgos and Leon. And it's, it, the Masetta means uh, desert, but it's actually an area which is very arable, it's flat, there's a Roman road, and it's long, it's hot, and it's boring. And when I was walking along that bit of it, I, I was really angry. A lot of my anger came out, and so I started throwing stones. I made sure that there was no one around, but I was just throwing stones as hard and as, far as fast as I could. But that was quite good, really. That was progress for me, because my anger used to be directed inwards, but it, and I was harming myself, but at least when I was throwing stones, it was all going outwards. I was getting it out. But by day 17, I was asking, what the heck is all this about? Why am I doing this? Am I just on a really long walk, getting blisters, losing my toenails for no reason? I was just, I don't know what I'm doing here. And in the end, I ended up yelling at God, and I got really accusatory. And I yelled at him, and I just said, why don't you do something? And then suddenly it hit me. God's already done it through Jesus. He doesn't need to do anything else. And I'd heard this so many times before. I grew up with it all my life. I never got it. But in that instance, suddenly, I just knew that it was true. And I realized that the ball was in my court and that I needed to do something because, again, I grew up in a good Christian home, and that's what you do. You respond to things like that. But I was scared because I knew that I needed to be really real with God. I needed to be honest. And I said, God, I can't trust you. I can't trust you for tomorrow. I can't trust you for the next day. I can't trust you for the rest of my life. I can't do it. I don't know what you're going to throw at me. But in going through that and saying that, I realized what I could do. And I just said, okay, God, I just trust you for today. I'll just do one day. And so I kept walking. Now, the reason that I knew that I needed to walk in the September um, 
I've already said that Adrian died quite suddenly. Um, what I didn't say was that he actually died quite suddenly on my birthday as well. And that was a day that I hated and I really struggled with. Um, my family forgot my first birthday and it was just a joke. And, you know, I could cope with it so long. But then as I got older, I was just like, I'm fed up with this. This just isn't funny anymore. And so on my birthday, Adrian and I were always away. I was always completely away from everyone. And, you know, yeah, we were together and, you know, we celebrated. But that was, that was it. I just kept myself away from everyone else. But then suddenly when he died, the spotlight was on me. And it was on that day that I hated. And so that was why I knew that I needed to do it in September because I just needed to be away. I tried, over the years since he died, I tried so many different things to, to get through that day. And every year, I just found it a complete nightmare. So a week after I'm throwing stones and I say, tell God I'm going to trust him just for one day at a time, um, it's the day before the anniversary of when he died and therefore my birthday. And the day before, I had a real nightmare day. <laughs> I was putting my walking boots on in the morning and a lady came up to me and she said, are you walking on your own? And I said, yeah. And she said, do you like walking on your own? And I said, yeah. She said, can I walk with you? And I said, okay. <laughs> and usually when you walk with people on the Camino, you know, you walk for a bit and then you go separate ways. Um, somehow I was, we were together all day and she just drove me bonkers. She's called Barbara, Bonkers Barbara. And um, it, it was just awful. And by the time I found somewhere to stay that night, I was really stressed. I'd absolutely had it with her. And I was really, it's like, it's that day tomorrow. It's that day. And when I arrived at where I, when I found somewhere to stay, the lady that was running the hostel, she, for some reason, got chatting to me. And I didn't really talk, as you can guess. But I ended up telling her about this day tomorrow, the next day. And I said to her, I do not do my birthday. A bit later on, there was a, probably about 20 of us sat around having a communal meal. And there was all sorts of different languages being spoken because it's the Camino. And on that particular meal, I hadn't particularly started talking to anyone. I really, I'd had it all day and I didn't want to talk to anyone. But suddenly... In walks this lady's partner with a birthday cake and a candle. It's Esther's birthday. <laughs> and everyone was just like, oh, that's fantastic, isn't that wonderful? What a great place to spend your birthday. And I was just like, sorry, it's not. And I survived about five minutes and I just had to get out. I could not handle that. And so I walked up. We were quite high up and I walked right up higher and I just sat down and I watched the sunset and I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and I was so embarrassed I couldn't go back down again I waited till it was really dark I was absolutely frozen and I just kind of crept in and went in and found my sleeping bag the next day I got up really early and I walked out and I walked off the path. I walked way off the path. And I sat down and I watched the sunrise. And I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And suddenly, 
I heard a voice behind me. And I turned around, and it was a guy that we'd nicknamed Jesus because he looked like Jesus. He said to me, are you all right? I said, yeah, 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 I'm fine. And I stood up and I started shoving stuff in my rucksack. I just thought I've got to tell him. So I turned back and I said, actually, seven years ago today, my husband died and it's my birthday. I turned back and I carried on shoving stuff in my rucksack. I thought, you idiot, you idiot, why did you tell him? And the next minute, he was just there. And he just said, I'm so sorry. And he just gave me the biggest hug. And I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. On the Camino de Santiago, at the highest point, there's an iron cross. And a lot of pilgrims carry a little stone. And I thought that I'd missed this cross. And about two days before, I realized that I was going to be there on this day. And this cross was about three kilometers further on from my hug with Jesus. And as I was walking towards it, I was thinking, what is my stone about? What does this mean? I thought it was going to be something to do with Adrian. I thought it would be something to do with my dad. But as I was walking towards that cross, I realized it was about me. And I needed to lay myself down. And as I was walking towards that cross, I just had a conversation with God. I just said, I do trust you. I do trust you. Not just for today, but I trust you for tomorrow. I give up. I'm not fighting anymore. So when I got to the cross, I was able to go up and I put my stone down. And as I turned away, I just had this overwhelming sense that I know what I know. And no one can take that away from me. I know what I know. And I just had this overwhelming sense of feeling so loved. It was then that God gave me assurance. About six weeks before I'd started walking, I'd been here in church. And the, the sermon had been about assurance. And at the end of the talk, I was just sat there. I couldn't move because just for a change, I was really angry. <laughs> and someone came and sat by me, and I said, I want this. I want this assurance, and God won't give it to me. And they said to me, it's like you're sat in a room, and you want to open the door, but you don't actually know who's going to come in. And I wanted God to give me assurance, and then I was going to trust him but I realized it was the other way around. I trusted him, and then he gave me assurance. And I'd, I'd asked so many times, how do you get something from there to there? How do you get it from there to there? I just, and I was told all the time, it's about trust, it's about surrender. I was like, but I thought I'd done that, I'm trying. But actually, on Camino, it happened.
it was amazing that evening. I, um, I didn't particularly talk to a huge number of people when I was walking, but there were two Scottish couples and then a couple of others, another two English friends that I kept bumping into. And um, I had thought, if I'm anywhere on my birthday, then I would really like to be with them. And I decided that I was going to head for quite a big town. But instead, I was exhausted after not walking very far. And I decided that I was going to stop at a, a village. And I was just on the outskirts of this village. And I had a text from Alicia, one of the girls. And she just te- messaged me. And she just said, oh, we're in this village and we're staying at this hostel. If you want to come and join us, why don't you come? And it was the exact village that I was just walking into. And I walked in to the hostel, and there was Andy and Alicia and the two other couples. <laughs> and it just felt like just such a gift and just such kindness that I had no idea, and they had no idea either, but we were all there. And... Um, Usually when you're walking the Camino and um, you have a a pilgrim meal together and there's a a bit of wine, um, and then everyone's off in bed by about nine o'clock. And um, that particular evening, um, I told them it was my birthday. I didn't tell them anything else. Um, But we managed to collect up all the the leftover wine and it was kind of a (laughs) one o'clock in the morning, I think. (laughs) But we were still up walking by half past six, seven o'clock. So by that point, I was only about, I was about six days away from Santiago de Compostela. And so I kept walking and eventually arrived at, in, at the end. But for me, it was all about the journey, not the destination. So that was my Camino journey, but not the end of my pilgrimage, because I still am a pilgrim on a life journey. So I arrived back a very different person to the one that started walking. But what happened on Camino didn't mean that everything was wonderful and sorted. I was still at times triggered in certain situations where I felt there was control. I still got very angry. It was hard to contain my rage at times and I wasn't able to forgive the abuse. That did finally happen. It took me six years to get to that point. And having had such a breakthrough on my birthday, I thought the year after the Camino, it was going to be fine. I thought I'd be up for a party. But it wasn't. And the year after that, I still struggled with it. And some friends celebrated with me on a different day a few weeks later. But that still didn't work for me because then I had to go through it twice. And I eventually realized what I needed to do. It was about accepting the day for what it was. It will always be the anniversary of when Adrian died, and it will always be my birthday. That's just the facts. But I realized it was about accepting the day for what it is, and I realized what I needed to do. I knew that I needed to drink champagne, (laughs) any excuse, and to be with people who knew me, who knew my journey, and who I felt safe with. So it was all set up. But as the time got nearer, I just thought, I don't know if I can do it. And then I found myself reading a book by Sue Monk Kidd called When the Heart Waits. And in it, there was a little Sufi saying, 
when the heart weeps for what it's lost, the soul rejoices for what it's found. And I know that to be true. For me, it's about holding the two together. Yes, I still weep at times, but I can absolutely rejoice as well because I'm so thankful and so overwhelmed by what God's done for me in my life. It was on the Camino that I experienced God, I actually experienced him, and that's what's made the difference. The, the pilgrimage was 500 miles, and I had three experiences, but I still had to do the walking in between. So you could say for about 496 miles, nothing happened. And I think that's a bit like life, really. For much of it, we don't have you know, wonderful daily experiences of God. We're not floating along on a happy, fluffy cloud of spirituality. We're dealing with the day-to-day nitty-gritty of life that can be really hard, relentless, and a lot of it is a mystery. I remember as a new Christian way back when I was young, um, reading Isaiah 43, when you go through the fire, you won't be burned. And I remember thinking, oh, that's all right then. And then 11 years ago, found myself yelling at God, I am burning. It was only two years ago that I went back to those verses and I realized that actually I'm still here. I didn't burn up. I wasn't consumed by it. It's so important to get the help that works for you, the right sort of help. We don't leave our grief behind. Grief isn't something we just get over. It's not an illness that we can take a pill for. It's natural and it's right to grieve our losses. We grieve because we've loved. But it's also important to recognize that loss is really difficult too when relationships haven't been good. Or perhaps there's even a relationship that no one else knows about. And we grieve for those things that are devastating disappointments in our lives. When we feel let down, or we have unfulfilled expectations. These things are all losses and griefs that we need to mourn. Many of us need help for the journey, companions along the way. I certainly did. But I still had to make the choices and the decisions. It was a journey that although I had support, which I absolutely needed, they couldn't do it for me. I had to do it. And no one can do the journey for you either. When you came in this, morning, this evening, uh, we offered you a stone. And I've shared with you my journey of carrying my stone with me on the Camino. And I'll never forget laying it down. Seven years later, I can still go back there and have that sense of, I know what I know. And it may be that as you've listened, something has connected with you. And perhaps the stone that you've got 
might have some meaning for you. If so, I encourage you to do whatever you need to do with it. In a minute, we're going to sing another song. If you'd like to lay it down, then please feel free to come up. We've got a cross here. And feel free to come up and lay it down. If you'd like to lay it down but would prefer to wait until the end, then feel free to do that. Do what you need to do. If you feel that you need to throw it, please don't do it here. (laughs) Go somewhere safe and somewhere that works for you. Or you might like to hold on to it and come back next week when we'll be having a candle lighting service with communion and some more readings to give us an opportunity to help us acknowledge our losses. And you can bring your stone back next week and put it down at the cross then. At the end of the service, if you'd like someone to pray with you, there will be people on the seats at the front. So I'd encourage you to take that opportunity if it would be helpful for you. Should we just take a minute now and then Valerie and James are just going to lead us in our last song, Sovereign Over Us. <laughs>